Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. That isn't collapsed too far, but uh, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Watching those grainy images, um, as a still a teenager, I was fascinated by what what we saw, we all were, and the world collectively held its breath. And then we saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin hopping around. That was fascinating to watch. They were bouncing around with the reduced gravity. We didn't know what was yet to come, and what was yet to come was the lunar rover. Um, I I quoted for you earlier a comment about the lunar rover. The most enduring tire tracks in the, in the universe lie not on any highway, remote desert trail, or indeed anywhere on Earth. They are found on the moon where 56 miles of tire tracks lie almost exactly as they were left nearly a half century ago. So what this leads to is a new book that's going to be uh, released publicly on Tuesday. We get an early interview with the author, Earl Swift. And uh, Mr. Swift is also the author of Chesapeake Requiem, which is a best-selling international book, and this particular book, his new one, Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumphs of the Final Moon Landings. I've been reading it. I've received a PDF version of it early, and I've been reading it. Absolutely fascinated with what I'm seeing. Earl, thank you very much for coming on the show, and and just fascinating material. Roy, thank you so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Did you set out to write a book about the lunar rover, which has a starring role, and across the airless wilds, or when you first had the idea, the concept, were you thinking of maybe going somewhere else? No, no. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the idea was to write a book about the lunar rover, and uh, as is so often the case, you, uh, you think you know the story before you start, and you find out in the course of reporting it that you don't know the story at all. And, and uh, so it was uh, one revelation after another in the course of of my research. Yeah, I've been just reading more and more and more, and one little factoid, and I never thought about it, but obviously it's true. The lunar rover was able to operate in an environment where no vehicle, no terrestrial vehicle of today's most modern, most advanced uh, type could possibly survive, and that's starting with a temperature of minus 250 degrees. And plus 250 degrees. And plus 250 so we're talking degrees, about yeah. We're talking, you know, depending on whether you're in the shade or in the sunshine, it's yeah. it's, a, it's a tough environment either way. But also, you know, there is the rather important absence of air, which, um, you know, compromises the, the entire enterprise in terms of driving. Yeah, it sort of takes away the normally aspirated aspect of things, doesn't it? It sure does, yeah. Earl, before yeah, we talk about the... I'm sorry, we have just a little bit of a delay, but we'll work it out. Uh, before we talk about the lunar rover in detail, I, I just want to let everyone know that your book also focuses on the Apollo missions 15, 16, and 17, and that's where it was used. What made those missions so historically memorable? Because for a lot of people, the last thing they remember is what we just played earlier, Neil Armstrong, One Small Step for Man. Well, the... the the shorthand answer is 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 scale. Uh, the last three missions, with the help of the rover, were uh, were measured in miles, not minutes. Uh, the the astronauts 
we're allowed, we're able to stay outside the lunar module uh, half again as long, and they were able to travel great distances over some pretty severe terrain on the moon. You look at the first three missions in which the, the astronauts were all, all on foot. Well, look at, look at Apollo 11 uh, with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. They, all of their travels during their stay on the moon would fit inside an American football field with a lot of yardage to spare. The farthest either of them ever wandered from the lander was 65 yards. Uh, you then jump ahead to Apollo 15 and the first use of the rover, and they traveled more than 17 miles. And they did it in a 19, what's essentially a 1969 General Motors product. Yeah. Uh, most of the moving parts of the, of the rover were from GM. Yeah. And, yeah, so it's just a completely different experience. They were able to visit uh, a, a wide range of, of uh, terrain types. They, they rode along the top of a, a gorge that was a mile wide and a thousand feet deep. They climbed the side of a mountain that, that would rival the biggest massifs on Earth. Uh, and they were they were able to do it while not using up the air and cooling water in their backpacks, which they would have burned through if they had been on foot. Yeah, uh, let's back it up to the beginnings of the uh, lunar rover and the concept. I guess we can go all the way back, and you do in your book to Werner von Braun. But the rover moved, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, from a contract signed to being built to completion. Uh, the first rover in 17 months, and it wasn't NASA, as you said. It was it was General Motors and Boeing that combined on this, right? That's true. That's true. 17 months uh, normally took at least twice as long for a piece of NASA hardware to go from concept to to delivery or from contract to delivery, and uh, the rover had to be designed and tested in that time as well as constructed. So we're talking about a, a real frantic pace that. Uh, that those guys undertook. You know, the, the, one of the revelations to me, Roy, in, in putting together the book was, was that going into it, I always assumed that the Apollo missions were entirely NASA's doing. I think most, most people did. Right. You, you think of the space program, you think of NASA. And the fact is that heavy lifting is largely done by private contractors who are supervised and overseen very closely by NASA and who are, you know, performing contracts, uh, two requirements that NASA has set out. But the actual construction of all of the pieces of the Saturn V and the Apollo spacecraft, that was all private industry. What were the, uh, the most challenging obstacles that had to be overcome in the design and the construction of the lunar rover? What did they run into? Well, the, of course, uh, you know, the... Uh, hostile nature of the environment that we were talking about a, a couple of minutes ago was, you know, had to be worked into the into the design for the thing. So it had to be hardy, but it also had to be extremely lightweight. Uh, NASA dictated that it could not weigh more than 400 pounds. And the reason was that the, the lunar module, uh, you know, it, it, weight was an incredibly important factor. NASA uh, thumbnailed uh, that for every extra 10 pounds you added to the to the lander, you gave up a second of hover uh, when you were coming in for a landing. And if you recall, Apollo 11, as it came in for landing, it landed with just seconds of fuel to spare. Yes. It, it was a yes. very narrow margin. So this was high on the mind of people at, at NASA. So that weight requirement was, 
was number one. It also had to be incredibly reliable. Uh, there was great concern, as you might imagine, that you know the astronauts might wind up three, four, five miles from the lander, and the thing might conk out. And uh, you know, what do you do? Uh, you know, if that happens, they had to develop a, a set of procedures just to, to handle that eventuality. And, and what it amounted to really was that they limited the distance that the rover could travel from the, the lander to roughly six miles. And, um, and they figured out where the astronauts would be at certain points of each mission and, and timed it pretty closely so that the astronauts would always have enough air and cooling water in their backpacks to hike back to the lander if they had to. Yeah, and they did this with 1970s technology. Yeah, 1969. Yeah. I mean, that's that's when the contract was let, and yeah. uh, they sure did. I mean, less computing power than you have in, you know, in your in your cell phone, certainly. And, yeah. uh, Earl, the um, the astronauts uh, of at least one of the Apollo flights uh, did uh, drive out of sight of their lunar lander. So, how did they establish where they were? How did they keep track of where they were? How did they not get lost? Let's let's just review how audacious that trip that you're talking about was. It was on Apollo 17. Eugene Cernan and Harrison Jack Schmidt got into their rover on their second day on the moon, and they drove 4.72 miles away from the, the lunar module. And that trip took them across an undulating plain, several miles across, or a couple of miles across a plain, up a pretty steep, uh, sloping avalanche fan, up and over a ridge-like fault line, and then down the other side. And so not only were they out of sight of their lunar module, they were separated from it by a heck of a hike. They were at the outer limit of man's exploration as a species. So when you think about, you know, okay, it's audacious enough to fly a quarter million miles to the moon and then land on the surface and get out of your spaceship, but then just climb into this vehicle and drive five miles uh, across yeah, pretty pretty crazy terrain. That that it's it's a bit mind boggling. Uh, you know, they had a very simple uh, navigation system as part of the rover. It had a uh, a directional gyro, which basically uh, uh, kept track of which which direction the the nose of the rover was pointed in, and it was married to a to an odometer. Uh, there were four odometers, one in each wheel, and uh, and by, by combining those two, uh, you had a very simple uh, track record of how far the rover had traveled in any given direction. And using that information, it was able to figure out where it was on the moon's surface. There's no, there's no magnetic field on the moon, so you can't use a compass. So you have, to, you have to just figure out where you are in relation to your starting point on each trip. And uh, it... And also gave them the distance to the lunar module and the heading to the lunar module so that if they got, got into trouble and had to get back by the shortest route possible, they could straight line it using that. It's amazing. Four, four electric motors on one on each corner, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. That's... Of a quarter horsepower each. <laughs> yeah. So My all goodness. told, this thing had less power than a... A weed whacker. It's just amazing what they did. Who are some of the most memorable people you encountered in your research, whether you encountered them directly or by reviewing their contributions? Who immediately comes to mind? I think uh, 
one of the, the people still living, uh, a guy named Ference Pavlix, who lives in Santa Barbara, California, a uh, refugee of the 1956 Hungarian uprising, arrived uh, unable to speak a word of English that fall uh, in New Jersey, and then uh, was hired by a guy named M.G. Becker, who was himself a Polish refugee, and, um, and they went to work for the U.S. Army at, at, a, at an arsenal in Detroit designing, designing tanks, pretty much, working on tank, tank mobility, and then were offered jobs uh, by General Motors. Uh, both went to, to GM to Santa Barbara to a defense research lab there. Uh, and, uh, and both got really interested in the question of how do you, how do you move around on other celestial bodies? Of course, Sputnik and, and the early American space program inspired that interest. But, uh, but they became, uh, kind of the, the groundbreakers in, in terms of, uh, of designing vehicles for movement. Yeah. And here we are in, here, here we are in 2021 and we have Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. They're about to go into space on their own vehicles. And then we have the U.S. intelligence agencies with their UAP report being released just a few days ago. So really a a lot of interest in what's going on uh, extra celestially, if I may use that term. Did anything untoward or concerning happen at any time the astronauts were motoring around the moon's surface? Because one of the, there was a fender bender, quite literally, wasn't there? <laughs> the fender, yeah, fender was lost entirely. Um, and that, that's important because the moon is covered uh, by a very fine, almost powder-like dust uh, for its first several inches. And, um, of course, the rover used wheels made of wire mesh it was it was woven piano wire, um, you know. To, obviously, a, a pneumatic tire wouldn't work uh, in an airless environment, it's subject to such extremes of heat. And uh, so the, uh, you know, the astronauts when they lost this fender found themselves completely covered in, in this dust, which uh, which was black and which covered up the the electronics on the rover and threatened to overheat it. That would have been bad news. Everything depended on those electronics. So they devised, with the help of, of Houston, uh, a fix using four U.S. geological survey maps, contour maps, and a lot of duct tape. A lot of duct and tape. It worked. That's so Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> so Canadian. Duct tape. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah, had to. When in doubt. Yeah, Earl, it is, a, it is a fascinating book, and I didn't realize just how interesting it was to read about the lunar lander until I really got into Across the Airless Wilds, the lunar rover, and not the lander, the lunar rover, and the triumph of the final moon landings. You've done a, done a tremendous job with this book, and I know that everyone who reads it will enjoy it tremendously. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.